0: everybody
1: what's up everybody welcome back to the lights out podcast i'm your host josh and as always i'm joined here in the studio with my brother joel also my producer and today we are going to be diving into the absolutely devastating tragic dark event of the aurora theater shooting For many of you out there, I know that this is a especially terrifying event. I know it is for me that this really absolutely rocked me at my core and completely changed, you know, how I kind of viewed the world after this happened. And specifically, I remember the day that I found out that there had been this mass shooting inside of a Century 16 movie theater in Aurora, Colorado on July 20th, 2012. And this had happened during the midnight screening of the film, The Dark Knight Rises. And I'll never forget the morning after all this happened. So July 21st, I remember I was actually on vacation with uh, my wife, Kendall, and I remember waking up and we flipped on the news that morning and all over the news was just these headlines, these terrifying headlines and scenes of what had transpired previous night at the movie theater where actually aurora colorado is a place that is very close to me because i actually went to high school not more than a mile away from where this movie theater was and i've actually seen a movie at this movie theater before in the past and so it completely just shocked me to my core that something like this could happen you know in a place that i knew so well and just i mean for all of you out there i'm sure you're thinking I can't believe something like this could happen in a movie theater period or just at all and so I just remember sitting in bed with Kendall and just thinking like holy shit this is just so surreal I can't believe this happened and so actually coming up on Monday so this episode will air on a Friday so the eight-year anniversary is actually coming up July 20th 2020 so with the anniversary coming up I thought You know Why not talk about this? I know it's extremely tragic, it's extremely dark, but I feel it's super important that we continue to tell these stories, and obviously we're going to have to talk about the perpetrator of this horrific attack, but at the end of the day, I always want to pay my respects to the victims and all those that are affected, especially in these mass shooting scenarios. So that's what I'm going to attempt to try to do today, as well as give you guys the facts about what happened on July 20th. 2012 so we're going to begin with talking about james holmes who is the man that carried out this horrific attack i think it's always important to dive into the actual person behind these tragic events because i think there's always something that we can learn from it i feel like there's always a missed sign a missed red flag there's always something i feel like that gets missed or people don't know about and maybe the hope is is that if we learn from these events we learn maybe know people that carry out things like this what they're thinking what they had gone through what potentially could have created some type of red flag for somebody that maybe we, this could have been avoided or maybe we can avoid something like this from ever happening again that is the ultimate goal i think with all of this but let's begin by talking about james holmes so james holmes was born on december 13th 1987 in san diego california He grew up in Oak Hills with his parents, Arlene and Robert Holmes, and one sister. And when he was 12, his family moved back to San Diego. His mother is a registered nurse and his father is a scientist and mathematician, paving the way for James' future interest in neuroscience. James played soccer, ran cross country, and enjoyed role-playing games like World of Warcraft and Dungeons and Dragons. Throughout his adolescence and young adulthood, James shifted between depressed and painfully shy. Sometimes completely mute, and outbursts of attention seeking behaviors during manic episodes. In middle school, James started to suffer from more severe mental health problems. He would hallucinate shadows that fought each other with the guns. He was terrified of unseen figures who would pound on his walls late into the night. He actually had a name for these figures called nail ghosts. So, just taking everything that you just heard right there. If this is all true, then he absolutely did not have a normal childhood by any means. I mean, I certainly did not experience any type of mental health issues at a young age or at at all. I've been very lucky, but the fact that he's literally hallucinating this young is definitely concerning because by the time he was just 11 years old, he had already attempted suicide. By late high school, James was just an inch shy of six feet tall. He was slender, Caucasian, and unassuming with wide eyes, a friendly smile, and a deep voice. He didn't date much, but he did have a few friends who he played video games with. James actually graduated in 2006, and that summer he took an internship at Salk Institute for Biological Sciences in San Diego before attending the University of California, Riverside. One of his internship advisors recalled that James rarely spoke and generally only responded to yes or no questions. He was stubborn and socially awkward, failing to bond with the other interns. James had presented a project to complete over the summer, but never finished it, and he didn't stay in contact with anyone once the program ended. But James described a much different experience in an essay for a college application than what his advisor recalled. He said that while the program was challenging, he excelled and enjoyed presenting his completed project. A social worker at a student health clinic noted his severe anxiety. James told her that he had thought about killing people, but she didn't think he was a threat to himself or others. And there was no other instances where he said this. During one summer in college, James worked as a counselor at a summer camp. He was directly responsible for 10 kids between the ages of seven and 14. The summer went well and he completed the job with no incidents. James then went on to graduate with a Bachelor of Science in neuroscience in 2010, along with being in the top 1% of his class. He was a member of multiple honor societies and described as an effective group leader who was emotionally mature, but he ended up skipping the graduation ceremony. After he graduated, he moved back to San Diego, and when he couldn't find work in his field, he went to work a part-time
2: job at a local McDonald's, and then later on, for a pill and capsule coating factory. A coworker at the factory recalled a strange incident with James where he was very unresponsive one time, just staring at a wall, like not making any movements, just acting really bizarre. So when the coworker tried to approach him and, and talk to him, see what was going on, James just turned and looked at him with this creepy smile on his face and, didn't even answer him with any words. He was just like staring back at him. It's just super weird.
1: This behavior is definitely interesting to note because we do end up seeing this later on and we'll talk about that more, but something is definitely not right with James, that's for sure. So in February of 2011, James met with a recruiter for the University of Colorado's new neuroscience program, which was created to bring together science and clinical research. It was an elite program affiliated with the Center for Neuroscience and over 150 scientists and clinicians. And Just on that note, the University of Colorado Hospital here in Denver is uh, definitely one of the uh, top-ranking medical centers, I believe, in the entire country. So there's a lot of really, really smart intellectual doctors, scientists, uh, people that are just doing research that do come to this facility here in Denver. So the fact that James was even you know, attempting to get into this program was a really, really big deal. The recruiter described James as casual and relaxed, seemingly unfazed by a process that was usually stressful for young people planning their futures. Only a handful of students out of over 60 applicants were admitted to the prestigious program. James also seemed detached and withdrawn. He didn't socialize with fellow recruits and made an odd joke while introducing himself at a group session That made others at the table very uncomfortable. Regardless of his odd behaviors, though, James was admitted into the program as a PhD candidate, and he started this program in the fall of 2011. He actually received a grant for his tuition and a $5,000 stipend for living expenses. And as a student, James generally kept a very low profile, resisting typical things like a Facebook account and rarely going out and socializing. At times, he was painfully awkward and displayed classic signs of social anxiety. Students who tried to draw him out of his shell received little more than a quiet, polite reply of just a few words. But for the most part, he was friendly enough and sometimes revealed his dry sense of humor in casual conversations or during class presentations. Those who had classes with him recognized his exceptional intelligence, despite his tendency to daydream and clear apprehension of being called on in class. Professors also took note of his intelligence and talent in the field. By his second semester, he was already writing essays deemed of the same caliber as published papers in the field. It's pretty impressive and it goes to show his level of intelligence is really up there. I mean, he's definitely way above average when it comes to his intellectual ability. Throughout the year, he had an on-and-off-again relationship with a fellow student. They broke up once in the fall of 2011, but then got back together in early 2012. But then, shortly after, they broke up permanently in February. This ex-girlfriend described James as distant and awkward. He had confided in her that he wanted to kill people, but she didn't take him seriously. I feel like this happens way more than it should. If somebody is telling you that they're going to kill people, I feel like... You've got to tell somebody like somebody at least needs to have a note on his record somewhere that he is having these homicidal thoughts like it just doesn't make any sense to me that people don't act. But I guess I don't know. I've never been in that situation, so I can't really judge. James later claimed that the final breakup had thrown him into a violent depression. Occasionally, he texted a female classmate with awkward attempts at flirting with one message asking, quote, why are you distracting me with those shorts? and another asking her out on a hike. But when she saw him in person, he often completely ignored her, and it didn't help that he was further isolated by living off campus. He had an apartment, though, on a rough side of town, and rode his BMX bike to and from the university each day. That's another thing I want to know too, is that that neighborhood around that medical complex is definitely one of the rougher neighborhoods in the Aurora Denver area, that's for sure. Locals in the neighborhood recognized him because he kept the same routine. He got breakfast from a Mexican food truck before heading to class. He often picked up dinner from Subway and even would spend time at a Latin club where he'd just sit there in the evenings, drinking three or four beers and talking to no one. So he's like that creeper in the club that's just creepily watching from the bar, you know, not no rhyme or reason to be there. And I mean, you know, if you've ever been to one of these Latin clubs, especially in an area like Aurora, I mean, he's probably going to stick out a lot, you know, being a Caucasian man. He's definitely going to, I'm sure people are like, who is this guy? What's he doing here? It's definitely creeping me out.
2: Yeah, definitely. And it just shows how introverted he really is. But at the same time, it's surprising because if he doesn't like being around people, why is he going to these places and, you know, just standing by, staring at people? And, you know, that's just all super strange behavior and you know it just doesn't make sense with the type of personality that he has to be going out like that
1: yeah i think that and what we find out is i think a lot of it has to do with you know sexual reasons you know like he wants to go out and look at at least look at women at the club dancing i'm sure that was a huge part of it and maybe maybe he might get lucky and one might talk you know a woman might talk to him but i don't know it's definitely weird that He ventured out at all but in the spring of 2012 when he was 24 years old classmates and professors saw hints that james was becoming more mentally unstable they noticed that he stopped making jokes and never smiled i guess he had a dry sense of humor and even that disappeared and so that was definitely a little made people feel uneasy for sure because there was definitely a very stark change in his behavior He allegedly hired sex workers and would sometimes leave reviews about them on message boards. He also proceeded to start ordering large amounts of ammunition online, amassing more than 6,000 rounds of ammunition and high-capacity magazines. He bought several guns at local gun shops, including two Glock handguns, a shotgun, and an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. What's crazy to think about, though, is that all of this ammunition and guns were acquired legally. I mean, 6,000 rounds of ammunition for any one person is a little bit ridiculous in my opinion, but yet the government does not restrict you from you know buying that much ammunition. And on the flip side, they will restrict the amount of Sudafed you can buy in a month because they are worried about you making methamphetamine from it. So I don't know. That just to me doesn't make a lot of sense, but hey, that's America. In March, James again told a fellow student that he wanted to kill people, quote, when his life was over. In May, he alarmed another student by revealing his possession of a Glock semi-automatic pistol, which he said was for protection. Now, during this time that he was sort of prepping up for this attack that he was going to carry out, he was seeing a university psychiatrist named Dr. Lynn Fenton, and she had been working with James for some time. And he had actually told her, about his obsession with wanting to kill people. And it was around this time that Dr. Fenton believed James might have a serious homicidal ideation. And because she felt this way, that he might be a danger to himself or to others at the university, she even brought this to the threat assessment team and the campus police. But James had no criminal record and didn't meet the criteria for an involuntary psychiatric hold. So literally they did nothing. At the end of the semester, James tanked a crucial oral exam. He covered little information in his presentation and spoke without interest or inflection. It was as if he didn't care at all. He did so poorly that his university supervisors questioned if he could continue the program without remedial instruction. In June and July, James had a few text conversations with the same female classmate. He had asked out on a hike earlier that year. He went on to tell her about how he had failed his exam, and that he was going to quit the program. Once he decided to leave school, his behaviors only grew stranger. James called a man named Dave Aragon, who had directed a low budget film about a vigilante called Suffocator of Sins. James told him that he watched the trailer over a hundred times and wanted to know more about the film. When describing the conversation, Dave said, quote, he came off as articulate, nervous, on the meek side, and he was obviously interested in the body count. In late June, James tried to join a gun club owned by Glenn Rockovich. Glenn called James to invite him to an orientation, got his voicemail, and James' voicemail message was so disturbing, bizarre, and incoherent that Glenn told his staff to notify him right away if they saw James on the property. Another warning sign. While considering the concerns Dr. Fenton had expressed to the university's threat assessment team, administrators deactivated James' keycard. The university claimed that this is a standard procedure when a student drops out, but James never submitted the final paperwork to withdraw from the program formally. James received another text from his now former classmate checking in on him after telling her he was leaving the program. And during this conversation, James asked if she had heard of dysphoric mania a severe mental health condition that can cause a variety of devastating symptoms. It's often diagnosed with bipolar 1 disorder and causes sudden shifts between the frantic and the hyperactive state of mania and the heavy hopelessness of depression. This combination can cause attempted suicide or violence towards others, and in extreme cases, this violence is accompanied by paranoid delusions. Unlike similar disorders, antidepressants can heighten these dangerous symptoms, While James had been prescribed Zoloft, we've heard a lot about Zoloft, haven't we? Commonly used as an antidepressant. There's no evidence linking it to his future violent crimes. I don't know, though. It seems to be a trend uh, among some of these cases. I mean, it's uh, last week, the week before Pazuzu, then Eric and Dylan from Columbine. It's interesting that Zoloft is even brought up in these cases at all. I mean on one hand obviously Zoloft is a very popular medication for depression but I don't know I'm starting to think that there could be something to be said about the side effects of this medication and I appreciated all of you that shared with me your stories about being on Zoloft and how you've had similar experiences with it so I don't know I don't know what I how I feel about Zoloft I mean if it's helping you great but it seems like it's Has a lot of issues for sure. But this former classmate also asked James about treatment options for dysphoric mania. He implied the treatment he was receiving was no longer working and warned her to stay away from him. Quote, I am bad news, he said. She texted him again offering to talk more, but he never replied. Now before we talk about the actual day itself, I want to thank our sponsor today, Every Lights Out One. So on July 7th, 2012, James Holmes bought a ticket online for the midnight premiere of The Dark Knight Rises, which was going to be the biggest blockbuster of the summer. And the ticket was for the Century Aurora 16 Multiplex Theater in Aurora, Colorado. For those that don't know, Aurora is a suburb of Denver and it's only about 20 miles or so from Columbine High School. And like I said, it's also a place that I frequently visited. I used to go to the mall that's directly across the street from there. I went to high school. Uh, probably, probably ride my bike there if I wanted to, or walk there. It's only about a mile away.
2: I know Joel has has been to that theater before, at least that area before for sure. Yeah, and I was gonna say, dude, there's a few times you and I went there it's you know when we were young to to see some movies and stuff. So plus, it's right by the Aurora Mall. When we were growing up, we were always up in that mall. So it's just a very well-known area for both of us.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, I used to roll around that area all the time. And so it was just, this is just all so surreal that this all happened there. And I mean, I even knew people that were there the night of the shooting. But early in the day, on Thursday, July 19th, James mailed one of his notebooks to his psychiatrist, Dr. Fenton. He then went about finalizing the plans for elaborate and deadly booby traps which he set up throughout his apartment. James then gathered up his body armor, including a ballistic helmet, an urban assault vest, protective gear for his legs, black gloves, even a groin protector, and a gas mask. He then packed up his stockpile of ammunition and weapons he had been hoarding the last several months. And then before he left his apartment that night for the theater, he turned on techno music and turned the volume all the way up. James then loaded all of his gear and weapons into his car and headed for the movie theater. In a last-ditch effort to save himself and his future victims, James called a crisis hotline, actually, and he hoped to be talked out of what he had planned to do. But the connection was lost after just nine seconds, and he didn't call back after that. James arrived at the Century 16 Theater in Aurora just before midnight. He was directed to the Theater number 9 and walked toward the right side of the screen and through the exit door leading to the parking lot where his car was parked nearby and when he left the theater, he propped the door open so that he could let himself back inside because I'm pretty sure that theater, most of those doors do not have handles on the outside of them. Even they're literally just there as like an emergency exit from the actual theater themselves. So he, I don't know how he did this without people noticing in a packed theater. Because I I know that if I was sitting in the theater, I probably would have noticed somebody propping the door open. But at the same time, again, it's late at night, so it's dark outside. The theater's probably somewhat dark. And it's packed. People are, you know, dressed up there for the, the premiere of The Dark Knight Rises. They're not thinking about, you know, somebody that's going out a door. They're not thinking. Nothing is crossing their mind to give them any sort of inkling of about, what is going to happen to them at all it's just it's crazy to think about
2: so as you can imagine the movie theater was just completely sold out that night like this place was packed and there was about 400 people there during the time james was at the theater and i mean the hype was real for the new batman movie so everyone was even all dressed up and just super stoked about it but going back to your point earlier, I think the fact that it was so crowded and just so many people that there wasn't enough movie theater staff to have a a good eye on everybody and their whereabouts and what they're doing. So I think that was one of the biggest reasons why it was possible for James to, you know, prop that door open and and come in and out basically. Yeah, because
1: thinking back to the last time I went to a premiere for a movie I don't even remember what movie it was. It's been so long since I've been to the movie theater. It feels like, but I remember that there was a staff member that stood at the bottom in front of the screen, kind of looking up at the crowd and was kind of stand. you know how there's usually doors or a door on one side of the screen. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if this, I'm pretty sure this premiere was after all this happened. I'm I'm actually positive it was. So maybe this is a new thing that they do where they actually do have a staff member stand at the bottom Uh, Of the theater in front of the screen to kind of watch and make sure people don't try to go out the exits or, or, you know, do any funny business or anything like that. So I don't know. I'm pretty sure that during this time, though, there was likely not a staff member because, yeah, I mean, it's premiere night. There's tons of theaters there, so they can't have enough staff to, you know, watch what everybody's doing. So it's very possible that he just slipped out and nobody even noticed that he had left the theater at all. So it's very possible that he left the theater, propped the door open, and nobody even saw him. But I don't know. Uh, it's still something that just bothers me to this day about this whole thing is that nobody thought it was weird that he was going out those doors because like, I've never seen anybody go out those doors. And I know for a fact that those doors are in an emergency only. I don't even think that the fact that they're not alarmed is also a little weird to me. That like, if it is an emergency exit, why wasn't it alarmed? when he went through it. So the fact that it was just open, unlocked, go out, prop it, come back in is just absolutely crazy to me. But as the clock ticked past midnight and into the next day, the lights dimmed and the crowd grew quiet and the dark night rises began. And then only 18 minutes into the movie, James got up and went outside through the propped open exit door. He went to his car, put on his gear, readied his weapons and slipped on a pair of headphones playing techno music. He then turned the volume up as loud as he could before heading back into the theater. His normally brown hair was dyed a shocking bright orange and in the armor and gas mask, he looked like he was wearing an outrageous costume. And then at 1239 AM, James returned to the exit door, pushed it open and threw two tear gas canisters toward the crowd. With his gas mask in place, he was unfazed by the exploding canisters. For everyone else, the gas caused severe irritation to the throat, skin, and eyes. I mean, at first, what people said was that they just saw this green canister get thrown into the theater and they thought this was some part of the actual premiere, like they were going to add some added, you know, effects to the screening and I mean, they quickly realized that that was not the case because before most people could even fully process what was happening, James started opening fire. He shot first at the ceiling and then took aim at the crowd. He fired at the people toward the back of the theater, and when people started running down the aisles, he fired at them. He used a 12-gauge shotgun, an AR-15 rifle, and two 40-caliber handguns. Even after he had opened fire, some people in the crowd thought the smoke and noise were just part of the stun at first. But as the smoke cleared, they saw James standing at the front of the theater illuminated by flashes from the gunshots. And in the chaos, people scrambled over the seats and on top of one another in an attempt to escape causing numerous injuries. Others lay down under the seats praying for their lives. Due to the tear gas that had gone off, the fire alarm system went off and people started fleeing, including those in the next theater over number eight cell phone videos from inside the lobby show panic and chaos. As people rush out of the theater many screaming and several covered in blood from security footage movie theater staff can be seen trying to duck and cover while patrons run through the lobby and out the front doors in one video from the parking lot a woman can be heard frantically asking why there are no ambulances or paramedics during the shooting james felt as though he were on autopilot and just carrying out a mission He said there was no thrill and no apprehension. He simply went through the motions as planned. He stood in one place carrying out the shooting, methodically unloading each gun in quick succession. He fired 76 shots before exiting the theater. A total of 70 people were injured, 58 from gunshot wounds, and 12 while escaping gunfire. Three people in theater eight were even shot through the wall. And when the dust had settled, 10 people were dead, and two more would die at the hospital from their injuries. So obviously this is an absolutely horrifying scene. A place where so many of us go to to relax, to escape. I mean, that's why we go to the movies, right? We go to the movies to escape from reality for an hour, two hours, whatever it is. And on this night, people were completely robbed of not only that experience, but robbed of their lives. I mean... For me, this is probably one of the most terrifying things that a human can go through and to just think about what these poor people experienced and saw and the whole time James is just completely seemingly out of it. I mean, he has no idea he's. No idea what he's actually doing. It seems like he's just standing there just unloading his weapons and chaos is just in carnage is just happening all around him. Like literally this movie theater turned into a war zone. And I know for me, this has completely changed how I feel about the movie theater. And I know after this all happened, when I did finally go to a movie theater, I I always had this feeling and I always had that thought run through my head. Like what, what, what if, you know, what if this happens again and, you know, looking for my exits, looking for, you know, what happens if
2: that happens again and what am I going to do? What about you, Joel? How do you feel? I just can't get over how sick and twisted James Holmes is to go to a place where Like you said, people are just there to relax, have a good time and place himself in a very strategic position, right where he had angles of both exits. He could see every row and coming that prepared, like he was going to war with an assault rifle with a hundred round clip and just making his way across the whole, the whole theater. just gives me chills talking about it. It's sick. And there were men, there were women, there were children there. And James, like he put in his fucking headphones, like, are you kidding me? Just to drown out the screaming? Like, this guy is fucked up. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, it was also mentioned that he was under the influence of Vicodin, which, you know, painkiller which on top of the medication, uh, you know, Zoloft, maybe that really made him like in a zombie state or just not feeling his emotions. Like, what do you think on that? Yeah, it seems really calculated to me.
1: I mean, he clearly, he's a very intelligent person and he might have some mental disorders and, and whatnot, but at the end of the day, he's extremely smart. He knows that this is going to be, absolutely horrific and you know i I think as a human being i think in this type of situation if, if you don't numb yourself and you know drown out what's happening around you then i think it becomes for any human no matter how evil or how you know mentally ill i think to some extent you start to feel what is happening and what you're doing and i think you start having you know second thoughts so i think he knew that that could be a possibility so therefore he did whatever he could to drown that out while also still being able to complete the mission and to me it's just i mean like you said it's sick it's sick it's calculated it's evil and yeah i mean there's just death carnage people are bleeding people are dying all around him and he's just in his own little world his own little sick world where he's just completely detached from from it all because after he unloads on the theater he then proceeds to walk out the door he went in out to the parking lot to his car and stood there waiting meanwhile moviegoers are just going absolutely crazy. There's 911 calls flooding in, and I'm going to play a little bit of those 911 calls because I think it's important to hear what people are experiencing. 315
3: and 314 for a shooting at Century Theaters, 14300 East Alameda Avenue. They're saying somebody's shooting in the auditorium. 315 and 314. There is at least one person that's been shot, but they're saying there's hundreds of people just running around.
4: 315. Somebody's some
0: gas over here too. 316,
4: I need a rescue in here. Hot huh, too. I got a guy shot. And inside of theater nine. Just outside of theater nine.
0: Team six, we got another
4: person outside shot in the leg, of female. I got people running out of the theater. They're shot
5: in room nine.
0: 318, I found another victim on the north side of this theater in the
2: parking lot.
5: I'm being told that he's in theater nine. From what I'm smelling inside,
3: I can.
4: Sounds like it's
3: OC maybe too. Get us some damn gas masks for theater nine.
4: We can't get in it. Fourteen. We have a party in the car shot. Plate uh, two four zero. John Zebra. I had I- 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 it's uh, Kia. Like Kia. Oops, copy. There's another victim in the white Kia. Where's that vehicle at? Sixteen Adam. I need a march core behind the theater stable side. The suspect's in a gas mask. Hold the air one second cars with that white car in the rear of the lot is that a suspect yes we got rifles gas masks. he's detained right now i've got an open door going into the theater okay hold that position hold your suspect 16
5: i got seven down in the theater Nine. seven down
2: wow that
1: is <sighs> it's just something that i don't think any of us can actually wrap our heads around you know like hearing that and hearing the Absolute chaos that's ensuing after all of this and during it and you know Everybody's trying to figure out what's going on the the police actually responded to this incident within three minutes I believe they were on scene Like right away and I mean t- to give some perspective the actual town hall for Aurora as well as the main police Headquarters for the Aurora police is actually like a stone's throw away. I mean it's only gosh less than half a mile away so the fact that you know he chose this theater is you know it's horrible but at the same time it's it's good that the police and uh, you know responders were there within minutes i mean this was unlike some of these other events out there where the police really you know fucked it up the response to it in this case they did A great job. I got to give the police credit that they did respond to this appropriately and right away. They were there on scene at the movie theater and due to the fact that the parking lot was in absolute chaos. There's people running out. There's people being carried out. They're injured. They're bleeding and police actually had to make a decision to start and just put people in the cars because they weren't able to get the ambulances there right away or enough ambulances there and also, it was still a an active scene. I mean, they didn't really know what was going on or how many shooters there were. At first, there was uh, word that there could have been multiple shooters uh, at this incident. So they just started putting people into cars and people into squad cars and racing them off to the hospital. Meanwhile, James was found next to his car at about 12.45 a.m. And he was just standing there. He just like walked out of the theater. He had no plan. He had He was not trying to escape. And he later says that he pretty much planned to die that night. Like he was not going to make it out alive. I think he thought that he was going to be shot and killed by police, but he ended up surrendering without even putting up a fight considering how armed he was. I'm surprised that he did not just shoot it out with police and that's how it ended, but he literally just surrendered and I want to play a little clip. There's, Uh, Our local news station here actually did a pretty good job of covering this event, and they interviewed some of the Aurora police officers that actually responded to this uh, this incident. And it's it's really powerful to hear what their firsthand experience was. So here is Aurora police officer Jason Oviatt, who helped arrest the suspect.
5: Jason, uh, for better or worse, you get a lot of attention. Yeah, for what you did. Initially, is that is that odd that here we are five years later and and sort of you're known as the guy that arrested the defendant? That is very odd. Yes. Um,
4: I mean, I think realistically, I was more part of a massive effort to deal with a problem. And I was just one of the people that was on one side of the building.
5: You've ta- I mean, you've sort of gone over this. I'm not going to have you rehash it, but is it just happened to be there, he happened to be there, that's it?
4: Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't say there was any real strategic plan to go to that side of the building for me. I, I went to the back of the building because when I was approaching the theater, I was coming, on, uh, I was coming down Sable Boulevard, and that's the side that is next to Sable. Were you surprised
5: as any to learn that that was the shooter?
4: When I first saw him, I thought he was a cop uh, until I got a little closer to him. And I was, uh... it's one of those things you can't really process quickly, even while on one level I realized that this this is a suspect Um, because at the time we were still thinking that there were multiple shooters. Even at the time where you're thinking this is someone who's involved, there's another part of your brain that's just totally unable to recognize that.
5: Would you you call him cooperative, or what what would be the proper term?
4: I would say he surrendered. Yeah, I, I would say he surrendered, he gave up.
1: It's crazy that they thought he was a cop at first i mean at first glance i mean he's probably armed up like the swat team would look at responding to a scene so i i totally get that and it's you know it's dark it's middle of the night so seeing somebody all body armored up like that i think you would probably assume was a, a police officer at first but obviously as he got closer he realized this was their their suspects because i mean he's he's armed he's got orange hair And yeah, I mean, they, they realized that this guy had to have been the shooter. So he was actually one of the officers that ended up arresting James Holmes. When police went to arrest James, he was actually carrying a first aid kit and spike strips, which apparently he said later on that he brought them along just in case he decided to escape and it would help him during a car chase. So he did, I guess, think about potentially trying to escape, but that definitely did not happen. But according to police, they said that during his arrest, James seemed to have no emotions. And while handcuffed in the back of a police car, he became transfixed by the frenzied chaos and panic he had created. He stared out the window at the crowd until the police drove him away. So as James Holmes is being taken away in a police car, there's still floods of injured victims that are emerging from the theater and they are trying to get help. And so into the early morning hours of Friday, Victims are being taken to six Denver metro area hospitals or anywhere they could go to get help, whether that was in ambulances, police cars, or even private vehicles. They were just people were being shuttled off to hospitals as fast as possible. And at University of Colorado Hospital, they were arriving with little warning. 23 patients, the most among the six facilities that treated casualties and with wounds that spoke to the firepower wielded by James Holmes. A doctor said it felt like you were at war. The sheer number of people you're seeing and the extent of their injuries is so unnatural. Many of the 58 injured suffered the sort of multiple gunshot wounds that conjured visions of a battlefield rather than the suburban theater where they had been shot. Dr. Frank Lansville said that the tissue destruction was massive, which was obviously caused by the high caliber weapons that James Holmes had. At University Hospital, as many as 15 critically injured patients arrived in less than 20 minutes, the rest within the hour. Several were injured so badly that they couldn't tell emergency workers their names. At the Medical Center of Aurora, Dr. Lansville described the first wave of arrivals as life-threatening gunshot wounds to the head and neck, the chest, or the abdomen. Those with head wounds were intubated if necessary, then resuscitated if they had stopped breathing. Those patients obviously got the top priority care, because abdominal wounds are deceptively dangerous because severe internal bleeding can occur from the spleen, liver, and other organs. So they worked very quickly, and honestly, these guys were, were definitely heroes in all of this. They performed portable ultrasounds near each ER bed to help assess the internal bleeding as quickly as possible. Emergency personnel continually and methodically asked patients to talk because speaking coherently is a key sign they're staving off a crash or a rapid drop in blood pressure. The next group to arrive had extremity wounds, severe soft tissue damage or bone damage from shotgun blasts and rifle or pistol bullets. Doctors mapped soft tissue damage and looked for a pulse in that extremity where the holes are. The last to arrive had felt the effect of the fumes from the gas canisters tossed by James Holmes. Of shrapnel cuts sliced open by flying debris or of falling and trampling injuries caused by everybody running out of the theater in panic. In the final wave of patients, Dr. Lansville said, grazing gunshot wounds bled profusely but could be treated quickly. Those patients after some x-rays to assure there was nothing deeper were soon released Friday morning. Even those with less severe injuries face the possibility of long-term rehabilitation. So at this point in American history, this mass shooting set the bar for the number of people injured and killed. And what's crazy is that after this, we had even more devastating shootings that take place. Up until the Aurora Theater shooting, the only thing close to a criminal record James Holmes had was a speeding ticket from 2011. And during interrogations, James told the police that his apartment was rigged with explosives. Later, when asked why he disclosed this information, James told a psychiatrist, Well, they originally said that children would probably get hurt. I didn't want children to get hurt, so I talked to them. Law enforcement went to his apartment the next day to investigate. The bomb squad and agents from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms were there to assist. Robots entered his apartment for an initial search and were used to spray water on any found explosives. Hazmat teams entered next to continue the search. An explosive device by the front door was rigged to be triggered by a waist-high tripwire made of fishing wire across the doorway. The wire was connected to a thermos filled with glycerin sitting in a frying pan filled with the chemical potassium Permanganate. All that was needed to detonate was a tug on the wire to knock over the glycerin. Spread across the apartment's living room floor were 30 homemade grenades connected to a control panel in the kitchen. Napalm, a highly flammable substance, was found inside styrofoam cups, and pickle jars were filled with bullets, a flammable liquid, and gunpowder. On July 21st, police dismantled and removed these devices along with 10 gallons of gasoline motor oil, lighter fluid, and gunpowder. The number of explosives they found had the potential to blow up the apartment and several surrounding buildings. And obviously, once they realized this, a total of five buildings in the neighborhood were evacuated entirely. Only a few pieces of furniture were found inside James' apartment. Days after the shooting, the police discovered the notebook that James had sent to a psychiatrist, Dr. Fenton, at the university. And in his notebook, the pages revealed His fixation on death and murder, and details of the planned shooting, including drawings, also found were disturbing pros and cons lists, which helped him decide on the details of the attack. He chose a theater where he believed he could kill the most people and where police response time was likely to be slower. He opted for the midnight showtime because he assumed fewer kids would attend. James was only interested in killing adults. He decided against an airport because he didn't want to be known as a terrorist. He wrote, terrorism isn't the message the message is there is no message he chose guns over explosives to avoid hurting himself by accident james had even considered becoming a serial killer but wrote that it would be too personal too much evidence easily caught few kills the question quote why appeared on multiple pages so clearly based on what he wrote in his notebook this was a very well calculated and thought out plan i mean the fact that he was considering what you know what place to carry this attack out in as well as you know the fact that he wanted to kill as many people as possible i think it's it's really hard to wrap your head around why somebody would want to do something like this but i think he's just i think he completely just lost touch with reality altogether i think he wanted to be famous for something like this. And that was the reason why he carried this out. A lot of people have speculated about whether or not he was trying to be the Joker that night. And you know, it actually became a rumor that he had actually called himself the Joker during this attack, but there's no evidence to suggest that that's actually the case. Most people that have looked at this case have come to the conclusion that He literally carried out this attack because he wanted to be famous for killing a bunch of people. Now, what the people that were in Theater 9 that night experienced was an absolute war zone. There's no other words that can describe what people experienced, what people heard, saw, felt, other than an absolute just horrific scene. I want to play another short clip from officer Mike Gonzalez from the Aurora police department, who was the first police officer inside the theater nine on the night of July 20th, 2017. And his, his recollection of this is truly chilling.
5: You're first in first in first officer in yes. How soon after the shooting do you think you figure you were in?
3: He was still shooting when I was standing at the door. Could you hear it? Yes. And actually I I go back and forth when, the more, I, the more I think about it over the years, I, I thought it was just a movie, but now that I have, and I've talked to other people, that, yeah, they, and the, I could still hear the gunfire when I got it to the door.
5: Um, at what point did you realize this isn't going to be a routine call?
3: When I rolled up, there was people carrying each other out, I mean, and dragging people, out, wounded people, they were self-evacuating and uh, immediately I knew it was an active shooter. So I went to the place where Theater Nine where it was happening and I had my gun out and I was standing outside the door and just then the door burst open and there was three kids carrying, two carrying one that was shot in the leg out and then that's when I could hear the gunfire still inside and they were telling me he's inside shooting, he's inside shooting.
5: Do you go into police mode at that point?
3: I'm. I'm trying to weigh my options here. I mean, I, I know that it's going on right now. I'm just waiting for some other people to show up so we can actually go in and make entry. And I'm telling you, that was felt like hours before the first officer arrived. But it was only seconds. They, were, we, they got there so fast.
1: So in the hours after the horrific shooting took place, family members who rushed to the scene were directed to Gateway High School to find their loved ones or to be notified of their tragic deaths police later went door to door to notify people that their loved ones had died in the shooting again 12 people died in the shooting and six area hospitals were needed to treat the survivors at this point i want to go through the people that were tragically murdered this night the first victim i want to talk about is john larimer who was 27 years old at the time He was serving at his first post in the U.S. Navy and was looking forward to a bright future in the service. A commander of his said that John was an outstanding shipmate, a valued member of our Navy team, and an extremely dedicated sailor. Sailors were really drawn to his calming demeanor and exceptional work ethic. He was known as that quiet, extremely competent professional. John was at the theater with his girlfriend, Julia, that night. When he realized the loud noise was gunfire, he actually pushed Julia down and protected her from the bullets but as a result john was shot and killed that is brave man that's that's real bravery right there saved his his girlfriend's life the next victim was rebecca wingo who was 32 years old and had two daughters she was devoted to her family and her church always sitting in the front row on sundays and after learning of her death rebecca's father steve hernandez wrote on a facebook post quote I lost my daughter yesterday to a madman. My grief right now is inconsolable. I hear she died instantly without pain. However, the pain is unbearable. I love you, my daughter, Rebecca. We all will miss you. Rebecca joined the Air Force after graduating high school and served as a translator speaking fluent Mandarin. At the time of the shooting, Rebecca was working as a customer relations representative for a mobile medical imaging company and was enrolled at the Community College of Aurora, earning an Associate of Arts degree. A co-worker described her as a bubbly, happy person and a friend said she had the sweetest smile you've ever seen and that she got prettier as she grew older. She attended the movie with a man she had only recently started seeing named Marcus. Marcus survived and later said he tried his best to protect Rebecca. The next victim, Alex Sullivan, was 27 years old, celebrating a birthday weekend with friends at the midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises. An hour before the movie started, he tweeted, Oh man, one hour till the movie and it's going to be the best birthday ever. During the previews, Alex cheered for the new Superman movie trailer, and others in the theater joined in. He had no way of knowing those were the last few moments of his life. His first wedding anniversary would have been the next weekend. Alex's uncle Joe said about his nephew, He always had a smile, always made you laugh. He had a little bit of comic in him. Witty, smart, he was loving and had a big heart. Alex will be remembered by his family and friends as being a gentle giant known and loved by so many. He always had a glowing smile on his face and he made friends with everyone. The next victim, Alexander Boyk or AJ was the second youngest victim at just 18 years old. He was at the movie showing with his girlfriend, Lismoa, who survived. His friends remember AJ as being a ball of joy. He was never sad or depressed and he wanted everybody to be happy. A Facebook page was created in his memory, and on the page, a former teammate wrote, You can't find someone with a brighter smile and a more positive outlook on life. There to help you up when you're down, and one to carry on life with such an intelligence. AJ loved pottery, music, baseball, and his family described him as a wonderful, handsome, and loving 18-year-old young man. The next victim was named Jessica Redfield. She was 24 and moved from Texas to Denver to pursue a career as a sports reporter. She was at the movie with her friend, Brenton, who said Jessica had to convince him to come along. When Brenton realized his friend had been shot, he said, he tried to give her the best send-off I could and prayed over her body. She had recently interned at Mile High Sports Radio in Denver, where she met her boyfriend, Jay Meloff, while interviewing him because he was a hockey player for a story. Jay said, we both had a lot of dreams and we were both very excited about our future. Jessica was also a blogger. And she had written extensively about surviving the June 2012 Eaton Center mall shooting in Toronto just a month earlier when she was visiting the city with her boyfriend. According to Jessica's mother, Sandy Phillips, she said her daughter had a huge heart and cared deeply for other people. The youngest victim was Veronica Moser-Sullivan, who was just six years old. Veronica was at the movie with her mom, 25-year-old Ashley Moser her cousin and regular babysitter, 13-year-old Kaylin Bailey, as well as the family's pastor, Michael Walker. Ashley and Michael thought they were attending a cartoon movie. Ashley, Michael, and Veronica were all shot as Kaylin washed in horror. She dropped to the ground and frantically called 911. She knew Veronica wasn't breathing, and the 911 dispatcher tried to direct CPR, but Ashley had landed on top of her daughter and couldn't move. It's absolutely heartbreaking to think about a six-year-old being in this horrific event, but I actually want to play a clip from Aurora police Sergeant Mike Hawkins cause he probably had the worst job that night. And this clip is about him talking about carrying out six year old Veronica Moser Sullivan.
0: I'm really proud of us and I was a well over oiled machine and I, I'm going to come out and say it. It was by God's grace that it was a well-oiled machine.
5: What do you mean by that?
0: Um, I know that God moved in us to work that well together and that quickly and that effectively together. For Yes, we had trained for a active shooter event. We had not fully trained for a mass casualty event. Um, we had not trained for what to do when someone's intestines were spilled out. We had not trained for that. So what do you do? Um, you pick them up and you put them back in and you run like hell with them. And I, I saw that happen and that female officer is not here to to interview about that. but. Um, immensely proud to serve with people capable of doing those kind of things.
1: I can't even imagine what that must've been like being a police officer rushing into the theater that night and seeing the things that he, he did. I mean, it was an absolute war zone. I mean, multiple police officers had said that even some that had served in Afghanistan said that the horrors that they saw, the amount of people that were injured and just bleeding and, and in in that case there's, you know, devastating wounds to to these victims it's just it's crazy i mean it's it the fact that they they still did their job and you know officer hawkins ended up carrying out veronica and and clearly you can hear it from his voice and if you're watching this on youtube you can just see the absolute toll that you know that this this event has had on him and it's just absolutely devastating that uh, a poor six-year-old lost her life
2: and I just wanted to recognize all the first responders that night literally saved so many lives and fought through probably one of the most horrific things they've ever gone through in their whole lives and they're able to you know save people and get them out of there
1: yeah I mean to still do your job in that type of circumstances very very difficult and I I don't think a lot of us can even understand what that would be like to be faced with that type of situation and have to go in, you know, instead of running away from it, you're running into the theater to try and stop the threat that's there as well as save as many people as you can. I mean, definitely, definitely got to give credit to the first responders, the paramedics, police officers, firefighters that all responded to the theater that night because it is literally something out of a, just the worst nightmare you can possibly think of i I think i even have had a few nightmares after all this happened where you know i i was in a situation like this and maybe you have out there too that's listening that you know when you see the images that came from this night and heard about what they went through that this deeply affected you even to the point where You know, you're dreaming about this at night and dreaming about, you know, what you would do in a situation like this. And it's terrifying, man. I mean, it's just one of those things that is absolutely the worst case scenario for for many of us. I mean, something that I hope that we'll never have to experience. I mean, it's just absolutely devastating. The next victim I wanted to talk about is Jonathan Blunk. And he was a 26 year old father of two. He had served three tours in the Persian Gulf and North Arabian Sea in the US Navy. He was an emergency medical technician and a certified firefighter. And according to his girlfriend who survived, Jonathan died shielding his girlfriend from bullets. And his last words were Jansen, we have to get down and stay down. And the day after the shooting, he had planned to fly to see his kids, his four-year-old daughter and two-year-old son, with their mom, Chantel. Jonathan and Chantel were separated, but on good terms and planned to enjoy a family day. And unfortunately, he did not get to do that. The next victim was Michaela Medic, and she was 23. She loved spending time with her friends, who called her Kayla, and was saving for a trip to India. She was with a large group of friends on the night of the shooting, and after learning of her niece's death, Kayla's aunt, Jenny described her as an independent minded and sweet girl who rarely asked her family for anything. She had big future plans. She was going to school and she was working part time and she came from a really close family. And so it was really devastating to, to lose her. The next victim was Jesse Childress, who was a 29 year old air force cyber systems operator who attended the movie with a group of friends that night and one of his friends actually was injured. His friend said he loved playing sports and played almost every day of the week. He enjoyed superhero movies and comics, and everyone who knew him spoke very highly of him. The next victim is Matt McQuinn. He was 27 years old and attended the movie with his girlfriend Samantha Yowler and her brother. And when the shooting started, Matt quickly moved to shield Samantha and Nick. And Nick actually left unharmed, and Samantha was shot in the leg. But Matt died from his injuries. Matt and his girlfriend Samantha were planning to have a life together and they thought seriously that they were probably going to get married soon. But as a result of what happened, that never was allowed to happen. The next victim was Alexander Teves, and he was 24 when he attended the movie with his girlfriend Amanda and a group of friends. He had just completed a master's degree in counseling psychology from the University of Denver the month before and planned to become a psychiatrist. And when the shooting started, he pushed Amanda safely to the ground and told her it was going to be all right. And at some point, she knew someone near him had been shot, and she called out for Alex. A friend tried to pull her up to flee, but she grabbed Alex's hand. She later said, I wanted to try to take him with me. Alex will be remembered as a very wonderful, kind, caring person. He had a great sense of humor, and at one point, he grew his hair 10 or 12 inches long so he could cut it off and donated to locks of love after alex died amanda took his last name and changed her name legally to amanda tees the next victim was gordon cowden a 51 year old father of four and the oldest shooting victim he died while shielding his two teenage daughters who weren't hurt his daughter brooke remember him saying he loved her right before he died his family remember him as a quick-witted world traveler with a keen sense of humor And he will always be remembered for his devotion to his children and for always trying to do his best to do the right thing, no matter the obstacles. So, that was the 12 victims that tragically lost their lives that night. But there was obviously at least 58 others that were seriously injured as a result of this attack. Many of them actually received injuries that they did not fully recover from. Some of the victims continued to live with the effects of their injuries, whether they're paraplegic or just had to have numerous surgeries in order to get some
2: sense of normalcy back in their lives. I actually had a friend in high school named Michaela and she was there that night uh, during the shooting and she wasn't in one of the theaters where the shooter was in, but just one by it. She ended up getting shot with a little shotgun pellet and right here, like lower lip. And still to this day, I mean, she had to get surgery and she still has like the scar from that. So I feel like a lot of people might've been impacted in some way,
1: you know? Absolutely. I mean, physically, mentally, emotionally, you can imagine how many people probably have PTSD as a result of this event. I, mean, mm-hmm. I know I surely would if I was at the theater that night, but yeah, I mean that this, Unfortunately, you know, you can you can't forget something like this. You can't, you know, especially if you go through it firsthand, you're going to carry this with you for the rest of your life and you're going to carry physical scars and physical injuries. And so, you know, James Holmes really affected a large number of people's lives that night in a negative way. And even though there was so much negativity and horrific things that were done that night, there was also a lot of people that were stepping up you know in in a situation like this and there's so many stories i mean i could probably spend an hour just going through all of the stories of people that helped others get out of the theater i mean you heard from the police officers that patrons were literally carrying each other out people complete strangers were helping the wounded and helping get people to ambulances and into the back of patrol cars to get to the hospital i mean countless lives were saved as a result of just people stepping up in in a situation like this and doing the right thing and even putting their own lives at risk in order to help others and i think that's one of the most powerful things about this is that everybody you know came together during this moment of crisis and stepped up and and helped save one another and helped carry each other out of the theater you know i think it's hard for a lot of us to understand what that was like or how we would react in a situation like that but Hopefully we would step up and do the right thing and if we saw somebody that was you know suffering from a severe injury and needed help that we would all try to help them and not just think about ourselves first and think about our own safety first and you know just get ourselves out of that dangerous situation that we would in fact try to help others around us and there's so many stories from that night of people stepping up and saving each other's lives. But back to James Holmes. So James Holmes, he was arrested. you know, He was interrogated. And he got lawyered up pretty quick. And he ended up pleading not guilty by reason of insanity on May 13, 2013. And when a defendant opts for an insanity defense in the state of Colorado, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. This means that the prosecution needs to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that James was aware of his actions that night and that they were wrong, and that he was committing a crime. Now, while he was in jail, James tried to commit suicide multiple times, but each of these attempts were described as half-hearted. In July of 2013, James was evaluated at the Colorado Mental Health Institute, and in February 2014, a second sanity examination was ordered. Both court-appointed psychiatrist Dr. Jeffrey Metzner and Dr. William Reed concluded that while James was mentally ill, He was aware that his actions were both illegal and immoral. Dr. Metzner ended up diagnosing James with schizoaffective disorder, a debilitating type of schizophrenia characterized by delusions combined with symptoms of depression and mania. Dr. Reed diagnosed him with schizotypal personality disorder, which includes symptoms like extreme social anxiety, paranoia, and acute psychosis. And Dr. Reed actually ended up writing a book about the case that was released in 2018 called A Dark Night in Aurora Inside James Holmes and the Colorado Mass Shootings. And in the book, he stressed that while it's important to include James' diagnoses in the conversation and expand access to mental health services, mental health disorders rarely cause homicidal behaviors. The book also examined James' early life and concluded that his parents weren't to blame for his violent crimes. Dr. Reed found that after spending 24 hours interviewing James and reviewing over 80,000 pages of documents, it remains unclear exactly why James carefully planned and carried out an elaborate mass murder plot. Video recordings of James' interviews with court-appointed psychiatrists were initially sealed and weren't released until years later. In one video, James admits to Dr. Reed that if he were given a chance, he believes he could kill again. This portion of the video was kept from jurors during the trial and other measures were taken to avoid contaminating the case. Documents were delivered in person rather than sent by mail, and emails about the case were encrypted. Within the first eight days of the trial, three jurors were dismissed when it was discovered they had been discussing reports of the case in the media, and two more were dismissed for not being truthful about the selection process. During the trial, jurors viewed 22 hours of video recordings from 2014 of James' interviews with court-appointed psychiatrists. Now, I I hate even giving him any screen time, but I'm just gonna play a little clip of James being interviewed by a psychiatrist, just so you can get some perspective of what he sounds like and what how he acts. Well, they drove up behind the theater because everything happened behind the theater uh, at that point. And they were looking in at, at Theater 8, and they had their backs to me even though I had uh, a gun right next to me and stuff. So I didn't shoot them, but then they came towards me and I put my hands up and then they knew I wasn't police. So clearly from the video, you can see that to me, it seems like he is able to, you know, think without issue. He's clearly intelligent. He's able to analyze things that the psychiatrist is saying to him. But at the same time, he's definitely got this kind of crazy look about him and you know kind of a weird way about how he goes about answering questions but it wasn't until the trial was nearly over that James opted out of testifying had he chosen to testify on his own behalf he would have had to answer questions from the jury the last witness for the prosecution was actually Ashley Moser the young mother who lost her six-year-old daughter in the shooting miscarried her pregnancy and was paralyzed from her injuries The last piece of evidence presented by the defense was a video of James in his cell running headfirst into a wall and acting strangely while strapped naked to his bed. The jury ended up deliberating for a total of 13 hours over two days. And when they came back, James was found guilty on all counts on July 16, 2015, including 24 counts of first-degree murder, 140 counts of attempted murder, and one count of possession of an explosive device. However, the jury failed to reach a unanimous sentencing verdict, so instead of receiving the death penalty, James was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole on August 7th, 2015. It was later revealed that one juror resisted the death penalty sentence, explaining to her fellow jurors that she just couldn't do it. Two others were also undecided. Even if James had been found not guilty, he would very likely have been sent to a mental institution
2: for life. At a press conference just hours after the shooting, New York Police Commissioner Ray Kelly told reporters that James Holmes called himself the Joker, a supervillain in the Batman universe. Kelly said, quote, he had his hair painted red. He said he was the Joker, obviously the enemy of Batman.
1: Yeah. And again, this is, I believe, where this rumor started that he called himself the Joker and This is just a rumor, and it persisted for years even after the shooting. And I think a lot of people were really worried when, you know, the new movie in 2019, The Joker, was released that there was, you know, worries that a copycat killer might try to, you know, do the same thing that James Holmes did. So there was actually a lot of people and even victims of the Aurora Theater shooting that were sort of protesting having joker actually even released in theaters at all for fear that somebody might try to emulate the character of the joker and you know carry out something like this again and i mean even i thought of that too like i didn't see the joker in theaters but when i heard about the joker movie coming out and i knew that this movie i mean if you haven't seen the new joker movie it's extremely dark it's weird because you can kind of see some similarities between James Holmes and the actual character, the Joker himself, especially in this new movie and just how dark and depressing uh, the character is and everything. And like
2: personality wise.
1: Yeah. And personality wise, even too, like, and mentally unstable. I mean, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, both of them are, are mentally unstable. So yeah, a lot of people were really kind of up in arms about having the Joker release in theaters Uh, for the very fact that they were worried that something horrific like the aurora theater shooting could happen again and again as far as we know james never said he was a joker he never uh i mean he dyed his hair orange which is very weird and i i don't know what i think about that i think there's probably something to that but at the same time i think james did that to make himself just look crazy and look scary and you know kind of complete his his look that he was going for that night so uh he actually didn't even know he was called the joker until he learned about it from other prisoners in jail
2: and it makes me wonder if james took into consideration that it was like a costume night you know for the premiere and i mean that's a great way to blend in right so i don't know i'm kind of on the fence like was he aware that he was just gonna play the joker role or Did other people just give him that nickname?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something that's still unknown to this day. We don't know why he dyed his hair orange. I think it was just he wanted to kind of look the part, per se, and kind of have this whole costume going and and whatnot. But the most likely scenario is that he chose the Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises, for his massacre because it was the opening night of such a huge blockbuster, and he knew that that it had the highest chances of being sold out. So I think he just he really planned this out and really just saw it as like the perfect opportunity to carry out his evil plan. But after this tragedy, I mean, it it has had long lasting effects on Aurora, Colorado, the community and all the victims of the shooting. And it really, you know, had ripples worldwide. I mean, I think everybody now thinks twice about going to the movie theater. And I think even if you go, you are thinking about, what could happen? What if something happens and what am I going to do? I know, like I've said at the beginning, I definitely have had this thought and definitely try to avoid the movie theater at all costs at this point, just because it's, I mean, we can't even go to the movie theater right now because of everything going on with the pandemic, but it's just not the same place anymore. I feel like, I feel like we all look at it a little bit differently than, than before this happened.
2: And I feel like ever since then, I mean, I've been back to the Century 16 after this event multiple times. And they, I mean, obviously now they they either have like a corrections officer or even I've seen a police officer just stationed there. And I'm not sure, you know, for everyone else, if that's now a thing, just having an officer posted up in the theater Uh, But I feel like I have noticed a change in security in all different areas and different places in life, you know, after this event.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I definitely remember at the premiere that I went to, there was uh, off-duty cops that were there and definitely more staff. Doors are all locked. There are alarms now, I'm pretty sure. So if you do attempt to go out that door, it's going to set off an alarm in the whole place. Uh, Yeah, there's definitely been precautions that have been taken and you know they're trying to make it as safe as possible but i mean at the end of the day it's just like this could happen anywhere i mean it's mm-hmm. not you know it's just he just happened to choose the movie theater he just happened to choose the dark night rises and and all of that but this literally could happen in any public place any sporting event any sort of concert you know as we've seen in events since that this continues to happen and it's just a, it's a really hard thing to wrap your head around what what makes people do things like this what pushes people to the point where they carry out an event like this and and obviously i think in this particular case that mental illness is number one the biggest factor here that pushed james holmes to this point i mean it seems like he went sort of undiagnosed for many years Uh, i mean he's got schizophrenia or forms of it so clearly that's that's really serious and was never dealt with. And I think he kind of flew under the radar for so long because a, he was just that type of person. He was quiet. He kind of kept to himself, but at the same time, he's also extremely intelligent and extremely, you know, he's got a lot going on in his head. You can tell he's thinking about a lot of things. And, and so I don't know, it's really tough for me and it's kind of controversial for a lot of people that they believe that, you know, he knew what he was doing the entire time he planned this whole thing out and you can't blame his mental illness or allow that to be sort of a scapegoat for him in, in all of this and that, you know, all of the blame is on him and you can't put any of the blame on the actual mental illness itself. So, you know, I, I'm not an expert on mental illness, so I can't say exactly what I think it is. I, I think personally it's a combination of things that culminated and, and led to this event, but at the same time, you know, it's like how much of that weird behavior he shows and those weird facial expressions is, is actually craziness, like just psychotic. And how much of it is him being extremely intelligent, he's playing up, you know, I'm a psycho, I'm this crazy, crazy guy that, you know, needs to be, you know, dealt with or whatever, so. I don't know. I'll I'll leave you guys with that question. You know, what do you think about James Holmes? Do you think he's a psychotic, crazy madman that just went crazy and, you know, carried out this attack? Or, you know, is the mental, is it just he's pure evil and he did this because he's evil and he wanted to kill people? So, and also let let us know what your thoughts are on going to movie theater and interested to see what you think about, you know, or experiences you've had since then, or, you know, if you just avoid them altogether, let us know. But with all that being said, we'll go on and wrap up today's episode there. Again, my thoughts, prayers go out to the victims and the victims' families in this horrific event We'll never forget them. And we can never f- forget these things because, you know, People died, people were affected for life and we got to make sure we respect and honor their memories and remember that these things do happen so that we can hopefully try to prevent them from happening in the future. But thanks again for joining us for another episode of Lights Out. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a thumbs up, subscribe, follow us iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. And yeah, we will see you guys next time. Lights out, everybody.